Welcome to the Awareness Offerings Podcast, a weekly offering of yoga philosophy discussion and guided meditation for the moments we're living in. I'm your host, Laura Tara Davy Joplin. I'm a yoga and meditation teacher, spiritual social media strategist, and integrative counselor, working to integrate the principles of the spiritual path into every aspect of my work and my life. This podcast is an extension of that work as I navigate the world as a white woman devotee of yoga, living at many intersections of privilege, living in the West, and trying to live with awareness. Thank you for joining me in this work. You're listening to episode 51, How I Got Here. Welcome to another episode of the Awareness Offerings podcast, everyone. Thank you so much again for your collaboration and support and celebration with me as we reached 50 episodes and now onward. So the first thing I want to do before we get into our opening ritual is just to orient you a little bit to what this podcast might be like, because I am recording in my backyard today, which I have a really beautiful big backyard um, right in, you know, right outside the city, which is a gift. Uh, So I'm glad to be out here, but you may hear some backyard noises as you listen to this episode maybe some birds, maybe some bugs. It seems like a pretty quiet day, although I'm, I'm afraid to even say that out loud and to bring more noise upon me, but I do live right outside the city, so any noise could happen. And, you know, anytime we deal with sound when it comes to, like, spiritual practices, like, you know, teaching a yoga class or sharing meditation, I always both remember for myself and try to remind anyone who's practicing with me that, the outward sounds are a really good mirror of what the inward experience of the human mind is like. Um, The mind pulls us away and offers um, kind of like sometimes distracting little moments and then we have the opportunity to notice them and to come back to where we are. And so any sound that happens, I'll invite us to, to use it as sort of an indicator of our present moment experience. So now let's, let's get into it. Let's get into our present moment experience by opening up this space by singing the sound of Om. Om is the sound of consciousness. It is the sound that is said to contain all other sounds. So it's like this ultimate representation of, of presence of awareness, of the consciousness that that holds all moments and all experiences. So we're asking to tap into that when we sing OM. You can always sing OM out loud or do it silently. Listen as a practice. If you're coming along with me, you might get your body into a comfortable position. You might choose to close your eyes. You never have to close your eyes. You could also just take a soft gaze, looking down the tip of your nose or softly toward the floor in front of you, the ground, whatever is in front of you. You might take a breath in through your nose if nostril breathing is available to you. And a full exhale through your nose, clearing some space. And then we'll take an inhale for OM. Thank you for joining me in that practice and now for this week's discussion. So the title of this episode is How I Got Here and that's what I'm going to be talking about today. How I got here to this moment that I'm sitting in right now as a yoga teacher of eight years, yoga practitioner of nine years, a therapist in training, a podcast host who shares you know, yoga philosophy and guided meditation, how I actually got to this place. Because as I have been talking to some of my loved ones this week, I've realized I've not actually sat down on this kind of accessible format for storytelling, this podcast, and shared my story, sort of my origin story as the spiritual practitioner that I am. I was invited over the weekend by a dear friend of mine to sort of share some about how I found my way from the Christian church that I grew up in to the more interfaith spiritual practice that I now hold in my life. And the answer to that was yoga and my journey with yoga. So I ended up talking to this lovely person a little bit about sort of my early days teaching yoga and practicing yoga. uh, And that sort of lit the the fire, sparked the fire a little bit around the fact that I've not 
actually shared that story with my voice in a public way. And I have a podcast now, so I can do that. So here I am today. I'm going to tell you the story. I'm going to tell you the story about how I got here because it is really a story of my of my relationship to yoga because yoga is the foundation and the reason for so much else in my life. So here goes. Story time. Settle in. Maybe grab a cup of tea. Maybe pop some popcorn. Maybe get a blankie. If you're driving, maybe not, but settle in however you can. <laughs> so I went to my first yoga class at Girl Scout camp. <laughs> I was probably 11 or 12 years old. I was a Girl Scout for many years and I went to sleepaway camp a couple summers in my, you know, tweenhood. It was a camp called Camp Misty Mountain. And I remember yoga being one of the sort of elective activities we could do as part of camp. That's basically all I remember, <laughs> though, about it. I remember, like, someone trying to help me be upside down at some point. I remember there being carpet on the floor, but that's really all I remember. Technically, though, that was my first yoga class ever. So regardless of what I consciously remember, I do acknowledge that as, you know, the seed. The seed was planted at an early age, for better or for worse. And then my first yoga class that I remember as an adult, but I kind of say that with air quotes around it because I was still so young, because <laughs> um, it happened when I was 19. I was going into my second year of university, and I was really going through a rough time. I sort of had one of my favorite coping mechanisms, right? Because we all tend to develop these ways of softening the harshness of life through coping. It's not necessarily a bad thing. They can be supportive, unsupportive. They can be supportive for a time and then not supportive anymore, right? It's this complex dance. But I had one of my favorite coping mechanisms for kind of softening the experience of life. One that I had probably developed a, a, a an unhealthy relationship with at that time. I was probably a little bit codependent with this coping mechanism, but in going into my second year of college, I had that taken away from me really abruptly. I was no longer able to access it. And ultimately, I think that was probably a good thing. It was probably an indication that I needed to restructure my relationship with that coping mechanism, if nothing else, an opportunity to look at it and do that. But at the time, it was really difficult. I am a person who experiences anxiety, and when I was younger, it was way more intense. It was constant. Um, it manifested in just the way I moved through the world constantly. I would like pace around. I would wring my hands. I would move really quickly. There was just this tightness and intensity to the way I existed in my body that I can look back on and see clearly, and, and even others outside of me at that time could see clearly was real anxiety. And so when I had this favorite coping mechanism of mine taken away from me, um, I went way into it. <laughs> the anxiety went up to, you know, a hundred or however you want to say it. it. It got much more intense um, and it became the center of my experience where I was always just showing up anxious and, and emanating anxiety from my very being in going into this, my, my second year of college, undergraduate school. And at this time, I was living in a dorm and I had this amazing roommate. Her name is Tiaja Taze, T-I-A-J-A-T-A-Z-H-E. She is on social media. You should follow her. She is a creative. She's a yoga practitioner. She's a beautiful mama. Uh, she's an entrepreneur. She is an alchemist, so many things. She's incredible and always was. And I had the gift of living with her. I was assigned to her as my roommate at that time and we became friends. And she could see in this moment how much I was struggling. I was really going through it. I was just a walking ball of tension and anxiety and she could see it. And with compassion, she named that for me a few times and she would just notice it and watch it, how anxious I was. And it was... I could always feel that it was never judgment. It was always out of a desire to understand. And so she was witnessing me going through this period of really intense anxiety. And one Saturday morning, she woke up, we woke up, and she said to me, why don't we go to yoga? 
Why don't we start the day well? Why don't we go take a yoga class? Because at our university rec center, they did offer yoga. And I said, okay, why not? Let's do it. Let's go to yoga. And again, this was, I, at the time, I don't even know that I remembered that I had taken that one yoga class at Girl Scout camp. So I was going into this fresh. And I went into it, and it was hard. We went to an asana class, a, a, a physical yoga practice, doing the movement part of yoga practice together. And it was so hard. I can remember, like as I sit and recall it right now, I can remember feeling like my arms. <laughs> and I can remember feeling shaky and uncertain. And it was really hard. I got sweaty. It was difficult in my body. And I don't know that that was a surprise to me. I know that for some folks it is surprising that yoga can be physically demanding because we do often associate it with you know, peace and calm and ease, which it can be associated with sometimes, but it can also be incredibly physically demanding. We are stretching ourselves and strengthening ourselves. And the purpose of that is actually to prepare for meditation, to prepare for for a connection to the sacred, but that's not an easy thing. And I, I really had that experience uh, in my first yoga class. So it was really hard. I remember being really sweaty and I remember feeling different when I walked out of the room than I did when I walked in. I wasn't necessarily blissful or elated or even sure what was going on, but I felt different. Something changed and that was enough. That was enough for me to keep going back. So my beautiful roommate Tiaja and I began to go to yoga one or two times a week together. It became this, this ritual. And I remember getting more and more into it. I would go early and, and pick a good spot for class. And I became you know, friends with some of the instructors who were fellow university students. And they were a little older than us. But I would listen to their stories and I would enjoy their jokes and really enjoy their playlists. That's another memory that's really striking to me is being in a yoga class in this early time, this first year of my practice, and being in Shavasana, which is typically one of the final postures in a class where you practice stillness as yoga. You rest in order to absorb and integrate and really receive the effects of the practice. And I remember doing that in these early days and hearing this amazing song by Snatam Kar, who is um, a, a devotee and a, and a yogic musician. Uh, she has a really kind of a deep and rich and sometimes complex story. She was um, a devotee of kundalini yoga, but that is now a complicated thing to be because of uh, the, the kundalini lineage, which I'll let you look that up if you're interested. Um, but I remember this mantra and I remember being so struck by it and feeling like that's beautiful. And the music took me to a deep place. And that was also one of the moments where I, I started to connect music and yoga and the practice of sacred sound. So we kept going to yoga. My roommate and I got really into this idea of engaging with our practice as you do when you find something new, like a new shiny toy and you grab onto it. Uh, we would you know, talk to each other about our different poses and the kinds of things we wanted to work on and the things that were challenging. And you know, we would go to our other friends' dorm rooms and like have a night of like drinking, but then go out into the... Our, our dorm just happened to be in front of the practice field for the football team at my, at my university. And we would go out into the practice field at night a little bit tipsy and try to do arm balances in the field. <laughs> so that would happen. Um, and so this, this whole year, it was a year from 2013 to 2014 that I was just going to yoga classes with my roommate. And I, another thing that I really remember distinctively is noticing when I was able to kind of cultivate presence more, when I was able to really be in my body. I was a dancer for many years, uh, from like age five to age 18, but I never really felt at home in my body doing that because I have very long limbs and it took me a long time to grow into that. And so I always felt really awkward and like I was flailing. But I remember this significant shift in yoga where I started to be able to stretch into a certain shape. It didn't hurt that we weren't asked to dance. We were holding postures and that, that extra stillness and stability really helped me because I would remember stretching into a shape and then being able to just kind of scan my body. Now looking back, I can name it as, I name it as like pouring my energy into different parts of my body. 
say I was in a triangle pose, which is a, a hip opening posture among other things where two feet are on the ground, the legs are a good distance apart, one set of toes is turning outward and the other one is facing forward. Um, and then one arm is on the floor, one arm is outstretched. So there's hamstring stretching happening, there's hip opening, there's, uh, there's a twist in the torso, the arms are stretching, all this stuff's happening. And I can remember being in that shape, stretching my way, expanding my way into that shape in my first year of practice. And then being able to like pour my energy through my body to notice my hamstring to notice my jaw, to notice my arms, and to really breathe into my body. And that was the first time I'd had any kind of experience like that, and it was kind of amazing. And I would find that the more I tried to do that in each posture through the class, the deeper I could go in Shavasana, in the resting pose at the end, the more I could I could relax and, and receive bliss or receive connection to the universe, whatever I was naming it as at the time, I could receive that because I had really gotten into my body and been very present. And then the other most significant thing I remember about that first year of my practice was when I was driving in the car. I was not in a yoga class. By the way, there is a helicopter overhead. I told you there'd be some outside sounds. Um, But I was driving in a car, in my car, (laughs) and I noticed that I was breathing through my nose. It wasn't something I thought consciously to do, and it wasn't something that I even knew was a supportive thing to do before starting yoga. Yoga taught me that nostril breath is typically supportive because when we breathe through the, when we breathe through the mouth, it sends a signal to our nervous system, to our mind, to our body, that we are either sick or in danger or in distress. So nostril breath does the opposite. It sends a signal that all is well. I didn't know that before starting this yoga practice. And so I found myself in my car, breathing through my nose. And suddenly I kind of had this aha moment where I was like, oh, this is doing something. This is affecting my life and the way I show up in the world outside of the class, off of the yoga mat. I am breathing more steadily. I am showing up in a way that is going to create less tension And I think that might have been the moment where I knew that I was hooked, whether I knew it consciously or just something in my heart was telling me um, in a more subtle way. But but that was it. And so I kept practicing. And then in 2014, when it had been a year, a lot of the, the yoga teachers at our university rec center, who were also students, were getting ready to graduate. So they asked me, do you want to teach yoga? And there's a part of my brain that even now looking back on that thinks it's wild uh, that thinks it's wild that I was practicing for a year I had been practicing for a year um, and was just asked now do you want to teach this and in some ways it is wild because yoga is so deep and so rich and so ancient and so many other things that to to even purport to have an understanding of it after just a year of practicing enough to teach and share is a little bit wild um, and humbling. (laughs) But at the time, I didn't quite know how deep and rich and ancient yoga was. It was just this practice that was helping me get present and get in my body. And so I said, yes, I do. (laughs) Because it was something that connected to me. Something clicked. And it might have been better that I didn't know quite how much responsibility it is to be a yoga teacher then. Because I might not have said yes. And it took me a while to learn that responsibility. And it was necessary for me to learn that responsibility in order to be a better teacher. But I'm so glad that I said yes, even just a year in. And so I took this very, very informal yoga teacher training through my university rec center. I had to read a book. I think I had to teach a demo class. I don't really remember what else I had to do. So that tells you how freaking informal this training was. And I, they threw me into it. (laughs) I started teaching classes, weekly classes at the university rec center. And it got to the point where I was teaching several a week, like a lot a week. And it came very, very natural to me to the point where a lot of people were coming. I had you know, football players and baseball players and basketball players coming into class, although I think they were required by their coaches to do that. Um, but it, it resonated with them in some way. Um, and I felt very connected teaching. I felt very much in a flow. And I, I can look back on myself in that first year of teaching and remember 
doing something that I still do already at that point, which is talk during Shavasana. And I know a lot of people don't really like that. They, they prefer quiet. And I think it's, it's about teacher preference and student preference and just a style of teaching. Some teachers do like to hold that you know, fully quiet space in Shavasana. Some teachers, like myself, like to offer sort of guidance like it's a meditative experience. And I was already doing that at that time. And I can look back and remember the words just coming, just coming out of my mouth and being pretty deep. And I don't say that to toot my own horn because the whole reason I share that is because the fact that it came so naturally and so deeply to me so quickly is an indication that it was given to me. It was not mine. It was not about me. Those words were not coming from me ever, even in that first year of practice before I had received any formal training, before I had any idea what a yoga lineage is or any idea what a guru is. No clue, but, but even then... It was never me. It was always being given to me. So we got deep. It got deep real quick. The classes started filling up. I started teaching more and more classes. And at that point, I was sort of being called on to teach in other ways. I spent, I think, a semester uh, teaching the University of West Georgia men's basketball team yoga. That was a really interesting experience. They were great sports. I will say that. Also, being the only woman in a room full of college-aged men, athletes, um, and doing like cat-cow and stretching at the front of the room. That was a really interesting experience. I will let you sort of use your imagination as to what that energy was sometimes like, but it was amazing and I am so grateful. And I believe they were the conference champions that year, just saying. (laughs) So I began to get these opportunities to teach more. And one of my first opportunities to teach outside of my university came in the form of being asked to teach chair yoga to a group of seniors at a church in the area where I was in college. There was this church group who would meet once a week to do activities together. They were older folks, so they weren't going to be doing mat work. And so I was invited to teach them chair yoga. I had never done that before, but I learned how to do it just kind of in a self-taught way, which has its benefits. I would say looking back, I would always recommend a more formal training, but nothing was formal at this time, as you could tell. So I learned how how to teach chair yoga, and it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. It opened me up to... The idea of yoga not as this athletic endeavor, as something to accomplish, which can be really hard to wrap your mind around when you've spent time doing athletics, which looking back, I think being a dancer counts as that. Um, But it, it really opened me up to the fact that yoga was not this sport. It was an offering. And I was tasked with meeting whoever was in front of me with that offering. And chair yoga helped me to do that. And it's, it's a skill and a practice I still revere to this day. I love teaching chair yoga. So it got bigger and bigger. And all of these things started to happen. And simultaneously, I started to care way more about yoga than I did about college. <laughs> I was already in that, you know, late teens, early 20s place where everything is changing and everything is hard and we don't know what the fuck we're doing, or at least in my experience, that was what was happening. I was also studying psychology. That was my major. That is what I graduated with, so I kept it, but psychology is an incredibly broad field, and at that time, I had no idea what the tangible steps would be to make any kind of career out of it, so I was kind of freaked out, didn't know what to do, and I had discovered this incredible discipline that felt so connected, connective, and so natural and so deep and so that is what I gravitated way more toward than my classwork (laughs) Um, and so the natural consequence of that is what I is the, the natural consequence of that is that I started to struggle in school I wasn't wasn't doing super well in my classes and that was both attributed to the fact that I cared way more about yoga than I did about books um and I cared not sorry, I cared way more about yoga than I did about books. And I I was still a person with anxiety. Um, It was, I was getting more tools to manage it, but I was still very young and I was still experiencing it along with all the other life events happening in my early twenties. And there would be times where I would be so socially anxious that the thought of showing up to a class just was too much. So I just didn't do it. So there was a point 
where my grades got too bad that I couldn't teach for the university rec center anymore because you have to have a certain GPA to have that privilege. It was a privilege. Um, so I could no longer teach for the university rec center. That was hard. It was really difficult both to really see, have, have my own struggles mirrored back to me to see that I was really struggling in school. There was shame around struggling in school and having other people know that I was struggling because the head of the university rec center is the one who sent me an email to tell me I was no longer eligible. Um, And, of course, it was difficult because I had found this passion, this thing that lit me up, this thing that was given to me, and I could no longer teach it in the way that I was used to teaching it. So, that became a moment of transformation. (laughs) I've always been the kind of person that when I can't find or do or have something one way, I'm going to try to find another way to make it work. Um, And so, I kind of sat down with myself and said, well, I know I want to do this. I know that I want to teach. I know that I'm passionate about it. So, and if this is something that I really want to do, I need to get a formal training. Because even then, I was aware of how informal (laughs) my university rec center training had been. And I was aware that there were 200-hour, you know, Yoga Alliance accredited programs. Although, you know, the the systems that have kind of... um, the systems of accrediting yoga in the West is a whole other conversation. I'm not saying that's the only way or the right way. It's a whole, a very nuanced thing. But I knew at that time that there was, you know, more formal training, more accreditation, and that that's something I should do if I wanted to teach um, in a real way. And at that time, I thought I just wanted to teach, that that was, that was going to be my career, that was going to be my life. So I was in my, at, at, by this time I was living in, an, in a college apartment rather than a dorm room. And I remember being on my bed, laying down with my phone above my face. And I Googled Atlanta yoga teacher trainings. And the first one that came up was Kashi Atlanta. First one on the Google search. I didn't even scroll. I think I was just like, oh, okay, cool. Sounds good. I clicked it. I applied. I don't even remember why. I don't even remember if there was anything significant about Kashi Atlanta that drew me to it or if it was just like, this is the first one. I'm just going to see what happens. I don't remember. I don't remember why. <laughs> and I feel looking back like that was some divine guidance um, because I, I clicked. I applied. I said, okay, let's, let's, see, let's see what happens here. And not long after, I got a call from the director of programming at Kashi Atlanta, who invited me to come to the ashram in Atlanta to come take a yoga class to see, you know, see what it's like and to talk to her, to have a little like conversation, little interview um, to talk about joining this, this 200 hour program. This was in 2016, by the way. No, it wasn't. This was 2015 because <laughs> my teacher training was in 2016, um, but I started the process the year before. So I began my practice in 2013. I began teaching at university in 2014. I started looking into teacher training in 2015. So this was at the end of 2015, right after Christmas. I went to Kashi Atlanta because I was invited to come and see what was up. And I remember walking in the door of this, this urban ashram. So not a yoga studio, but a, an ashram, a community center, a service center, a space of temples and teachings and depth. I walked in. And at that time, Kashi Atlanta has been, been remodeled a little bit. COVID is part of that. But at that time, there were all these paintings and pictures on the walls. It was like colorful and mystical and wild. And I walked in. And I was just like, oh, I don't even know that I said that to myself consciously, but, but I distinctly remember something in my body, something in my heart sort of resonating that whatever my vibration, whatever my energy is matched up real well with whatever the energy in that building was. Cause you can feel it. There's been so much spiritual practice and deep spiritual teaching inside that building that it, it has a feeling. And I felt it when I walked in and something in me said, okay all right, something's going on here. And then I took the class. (laughs) And the class happened to be with one of our teachers, this, our director of programming, who is now a Swami, a yoga monk. Um, She's this fiery teacher. Her name, literally her spiritual name, the, the name she received as a symbol of a commitment to our lineage means fire in some ways. And she, that is her. She, she does fire rituals. She does all of our fire ceremonies and she's a fiery ass teacher, like dynamic yoga, very like 
fiery is the only word that's coming up it's like fast paced and a lot of repetitive movement and it'll kick your butt and in the best way a lot of people love that and there is I, I firmly believe if you want it there is a place for you know dynamic yoga as a tool for connection because we can use that fire to, to, to transform and to connect and that that's her style but that was the first yoga class that I ever took at Kashi Atlanta <laughs> And I walked in the door and I said, whoa, this is awesome. But by the time the class was over, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> if this is what every single class here is like, I'm going to die. Um, which obviously is not the case. There are different teachers and different styles. Um, so I stuck with it, even though I was terrified, but also, you know, still feeling that connection that drew me to yoga in the first place. Um, and then I was invited to take another class with another teacher. And this director of programming, she said, come meet our Swami. And, you know, she was like, she, she, the director of programming described Swami as like the source, the source of all the teachings that I would be experiencing throughout this training. So, you, so she said, come take her class, come meet her. And so I did. And I met her. I met Swami Jayadevi for the first time. <laughs> I might cry actually. Um, and I was just, enveloped <laughs> in her love. The reason that I love my spiritual teacher, Swami Jayadevi, the primary teacher at Kashi Atlanta, where I took my training and where I continue to study and teach, is because she just emanates, embodies, unconditional love and you feel it whether you know that's what it is or not you feel it this this light that she is just radiates and I felt it in that moment you know she I, I somewhat remember some of the things she said to me she knew I was teaching yoga to basketball players and so she was talking to me about how some of the calf stretching we did would be good for them but it was a feeling and I, I look back on that memory and it's like it's like tinted in golden light almost because I I was so enveloped by her light and in that moment whether again whether I knew it consciously or not I I had met my teacher and that began my my journey through yoga teacher training with Kashi Atlanta I took the training in 2016 from February to August of 2016 and there were times when I felt like I was on fire, <laughs> truly, like I could feel heat in the center of my chest, in the energy center associated with the spiritual heart. And I wrote to my teacher, I wrote to Swami Jayadevi to tell her that at one point. And that was around the same time where I, beca I became familiar with the concept of spiritual names. And I want to acknowledge that this is a complex practice. And there are some folks in, who are indigenous to South Asia which is where India, or excuse me, which is where yoga comes from. Uh, classical yoga as we know it comes from. There are some people who are uncomfortable with this practice. There are some people who have no issue with it, who could not care less because people from certain cultures are not a monolith. So I just want to acknowledge the nuance there. Um, the spiritual naming, in my understanding, or at least the way that it's been framed in my lineage, represents an initiation like that fire that I could feel in the center of my chest fire transforms one thing to another and fire in in Vedic tradition uh, Vedic scripture is this ancient Indian set of texts that a lot of yoga philosophy is based on in Vedic tradition fire is often used in initiation and ceremony and so a uh, spiritual name is an initiation a, a transformation to represent a commitment for me it was my commitment to my yoga lineage and for a lot of people, it's a commitment to constant transformation, to constantly being initiated. And in my lineage, the name you receive is not a small thing. It's not just something to use to, to feel exotic, to have clout, to say, oh, I have an Indian name and that must mean that I have some kind of credential, that I am spiritually superior. It is a teaching and it's a responsibility and it's a lifetime thing. So just kind of a sidebar to acknowledge the complexity and depth of spiritual naming and how I relate to my spiritual name, knowing that it is complex. But at this time during my teacher training, 
I became familiar with this concept of people getting spiritual names. And I got really curious. And I wrote to my teacher and I said, you know, I feel like I'm on fire from the inside. I want to ask for a spiritual name whenever you think I'm ready. And this is another one of those places I can see looking back where had I known what that really meant and what the responsibility was, I don't even know if I would have asked. I can see how spiritually young I was, um, you know, in saying yes to teaching yoga after a year of practicing it. And then in, in trying to get a spiritual name after being in my spiritual community for like a few months, I was like, yeah, give me a spiritual name. Let's do it. Um, but I wouldn't change it, even though it's kind of like spiritually reckless looking back, wouldn't change it for a thing because it all unfolded the way that it did. And so I asked my teacher for a spiritual name. And during the middle, like not the middle, but like toward the end, but the middle of the summer of 2016, during this um, kind of big community fundraising weekend we were having, I received my name from my teacher, Tara Devi Jaya. And Jaya is kind of a last name if you will. It's, it's a name, it's a suffix that goes at the end of most names in our spiritual lineage because it's a name that's associated with our primary teacher. Um, but Tara Devi means literally star goddess. Tara means star and Tara is the Tibetan Buddhist goddess of compassion. So God, I was named for the goddess of compassion. And again, that's a responsibility and a teaching and one I still have to learn from and get to learn from every day. So I received this spiritual name during my teacher training. I was on fire for this yoga. And so that means I was still doing less and less school-wise. Because I, I was still in college at this time. It happened that I was taking a class called Eastern and Transpersonal Psychology, which basically relates Eastern tradition like Taoism, Buddhism, Hinduism to the discipline of psychology. I was taking that class at the same time that I was doing my yoga teacher training. And I was finding all these commonalities between what my teacher, my spiritual teacher was saying and what my professor was saying. So that was amazing. And that was probably my first hint that that's the kind of road I would walk down career wise. So I was really engaged with that. But otherwise, I was still in school during teacher training and mostly still could not care less about school. I was just so in love and like spiritually drunk on on spiritual energy that I was just completely drawn to my yoga practice and so I was doing even worse in school so I finished my yoga teacher training and right away I started teaching I got a job teaching yoga at a gym in the in the small town where my university was I eventually began to sub a lot of classes at Kashi Atlanta, and that led into my being offered a weekly class at Kashi Atlanta in early 2017. So the following year, 2017, is when I officially began teaching at my ashram. And one of the classes I was offered is one I still teach today, my Thursday class. Been doing that since 2017. It's wild. In 2017, that was also the year that I was placed on academic suspension <laughs> because I was not giving my full heart and energy to school. And again, there was a lot of shame around that at that time. There was a lot of pain around it. Um, and some of it's very understandable. My parents were really upset and they, they have supported me throughout my schooling in a lot of ways. And I completely understand that. But looking back, I kind of get it a little more because my heart was so on fire in this one direction that I truly didn't have the energy to give to university. But I was placed on academic suspension, so I moved home. I left my university for that time, and I moved home to, um, to live with my parents and kind of finish out my academic suspension, and the plan was to finish my degree online because I found I had the option to do that. So I was going to live at home and have a little more structure. Now, around this same time in 2017, I had just quit a job. Throughout this entire time, this whole college yoga experience I've been describing to you, I was working a retail job at Bath and Body Works. I don't think that much about it. I think because I've repressed it because it was, it was a wild experience. That's all I'll say. Um, but I had just recently quit that job at the end of 2016. So I had graduated my yoga teacher training. I'd quit my job and I was on academic suspension. So I moved home and 
I also got a new job and it came from my yoga teacher training. When I said that yoga is at the root of everything, I really mean it because one of my fellow graduates in my same class of yoga teacher training, my, my cohort, Melanie Storiston, she's on Instagram too, and she's at Align Wellness ATL. That is her therapy group. Um, but she is a social worker. She is a licensed clinical social worker. She, is, she practices psychotherapy. And she had a colleague who was looking for a personal assistant. That colleague's name was Lena Franklin. You've probably heard me talk about her on this podcast. She, at the time, was also a licensed clinical social worker practicing psychotherapy. Her work has evolved in some other amazing directions since then. But when I met her, that's what was happening. And her business was just starting to grow. And she needed a personal assistant. So through Kashi Atlanta, through my community, I was introduced to Lena. And I got the job. And I became her personal assistant. And at that time, that meant that I was doing pretty much everything. I was, not everything, but I was doing a lot. I was, you know, helping to get supplies for her therapy office. I was doing, you know, handing out hard copies of flyers for events. I was doing email marketing. And I was doing her social media. So I got this new job. I'm going to put a pin in that for a second because I will come back to it. I'm going to go back a little bit to the yoga first because there's these two around 2017 I can look back and see there were these two parallel journeys that began to happen so I got this new job and I had moved home because I was on academic suspension and I found a yoga studio in Cumming in Forsyth County where my parents still live to teach at because no matter what I was always going to be teaching and I can look back and reflect on that and actually be really grateful that even in this time when so much was dissolving and being upended and uncertain, I was always teaching. I always had that skill and I always had places to teach and that's such a gift. So I found Yoga Sila, an incredible yoga studio in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains in in Coal Mountain, not really Coal Mountain, it's in Forsyth County, Georgia, and I began teaching there. I still teach there to this day. Even though I've moved out of Forsyth County, I still commute to teach there because I've become so attached to teaching at this studio because there's this incredible community there. The teachers, the owner, Tiffany Stevens, also on Instagram. You should find all these people. Um, and just the, the atmosphere and the skill with which yoga is shared. I learned so much about technical yoga skills, body mechanics, alignment, the use of props, um, pose, you know, different ways of approaching poses from the way that the, the core teachers of that studio teach and share. And I still teach there to this day. So that is pretty much, <laughs> it's hard to wrap it up, but that's pretty much how I got to where I am yoga wise, because I'm still teaching at Kashi Atlanta today. I went from, I was offered two weekly classes in 2017. One of them I, I gave up because it wasn't really picking up. But my Thursday class, I continue to teach. I now also teach on Sundays and Wednesdays. And my, my, kind of my arsenal of classes there has grown. And I'm really grateful. And I still teach two classes a week at Yoga Sila to this day. So that's how I found my way to my yoga communities. But like I said, at the same time, there was this parallel journey happening where I was starting to figure out more about my work. Not just teaching yoga, because even though when I first, you know, Googled Atlanta yoga teacher trainings and found Kashi Atlanta, I was under the impression I would just be a full-time yoga teacher. By that time, I had learned that it's really, really, really hard to be a full-time yoga teacher and make enough money to live. It takes a lot of, usually a lot of, traveling, driving around to different studios. It takes a lot on your body because you have to teach a bunch of classes or you have to be like a yoga celebrity and get Instagram famous. Um, and that's a story for another day because during all of this, I was also sort of experimenting and, and learning about being a yoga practitioner and teacher on Instagram and what that would mean for me. And, and the long and short of it is that it kind of came to a crossroads, um, and I, I had to make a choice about whether, I, whether or not I wanted to basically be a walking advertisement for other people's products because that's one way that you can make money and you know grow on social media as a yoga teacher and practitioner. Or if I wanted to 
just share my own, just be doing my work in the world, be doing my work off the internet, but be sharing about it on social media. And I chose the latter. Um, but all that is to say at that time, I, I had kind of understood that it's, I wasn't going to be a full-time yoga teacher. And even though I was on academic suspension for 2017, for most of 2017, um, I actually, it was like the back half of 2017. Either way, I was on academic suspension, but I still wanted to finish my degree. I had been called to psychology for a reason. I've loved that discipline ever since I took an AP psychology class in my senior year of high school. Um, I've always been passionate about mental health because of the way that that has shown up in my family. So I knew it was for a reason. I wanted to finish the degree and I knew I wasn't going to be a full-time yoga teacher. So parallel to me, establishing myself as a yoga teacher, I was also finding my way in my work. And that is when I had started my job with Lena and I was her assistant. And part of that was doing her social media, which as you know, now social media is one of my kind of full-time skills. And the way that worked is that I, Lena's business continued to grow to the point where she began to hire other people to do more specialized things. So I wasn't doing the bulk of the work that her business needed and there were other people stepping in. So with that came an opportunity for me to kind of specialize and to just put my energy toward the work that was needed of me. And it just so happened that in being asked to run someone else's social media, mostly I think because I was just a person of a certain generation who inherently understood social media. But in doing that, it actually turned out that I was really good at it. So that became my, my primary role in Lena's company, in her business. And I became her social media manager and I started to learn more and more about social media marketing, about creating content, about merging spiritual concepts with the very like material idea of social media. And I continue to develop that craft and I'm continuing to develop it today because I'm still doing that work. And that continued to grow to the point where I began to take on other clients. I now have four primary clients that I run all of their social media for. And I do some consulting work as well, helping other people kind of navigate social media as, as spiritual practitioners. And as that was happening, I also was having a career path modeled for me right in front of my face because at that time, like I shared, Lena was a licensed clinical social worker. She was practicing psychotherapy. And this was at the time where I still was floundering with my schooling. I had no idea how I wanted to apply my psych- my psychology degree or how I even could. And through my Kashi community, I was introduced to Lena and it felt like the universe tapping me on the head saying, this is a way. This is a path and I'm following it because I was shown that clinical social work is one avenue for practicing psychotherapy. It also includes a a lens of social justice, of advocacy that other, other paths don't include quite as much. And it feels at least to me like a very practical way to get into the field without having to spend forever in school. So it all appealed to me very much. So I was establishing myself as a yoga teacher. I was learning these skills as a social media strategist, and I was having a a career path as as a psychotherapist modeled for me. And I decided to follow it. So I completed my academic suspension and I got back. I had to, I think I had to be readmitted. I was readmitted to my university. I went to the university of West Georgia and I was readmitted and I was still living at home and completed my coursework online. And I graduated with my undergraduate degree finally in May of 2019. <laughs> six years, six and a half years after I started school. And that was my path. I own that, you know, for a reason. I say that out loud because I want to sort of normalize that the path is winding and different for each of us. So I graduated in May of 2019. At this time, I was, I was teaching a lot of yoga. I was deep in the social media world. And it was time to apply for grad school because I knew that there was a way forward and that if I got a master's of social master's in social work, I could pursue um, clinical social work licensure. So I applied to several graduate programs in Georgia. I was rejected. I was rejected by a couple of, of Georgia schools. I then applied for 
a graduate program at Florida State University, which is completely online, save for some in-person, there were supposed to be some in-person weekends where we would all meet together, didn't happen because of COVID. Either way, I applied for this online program for Florida State. I didn't get in, but I was told by my sort of my go-between at that time that Florida State offers this option where students can essentially submit a petition for exceptional consideration essentially to write an essay to explain to the board of admissions why they should be admitted despite any kind of obstacles that might appear to be in the way and that was a gift that was a door for me because I was able to write a letter essentially and explain that my GPA in the first few years of my, my undergraduate experience does not reflect my understanding of the material or my skill or dedication as a student. This is what was happening. And I basically told a lot of the story I've told to you <laughs> um, that I, I had a lot going on and I was, I was unsure and I didn't know, you know, what I was doing or what I could do. But I asked them to look at my grades for the last, like, I think it was like six semesters that I had to finish out. I asked them to look at those grades because I had like a 3.7 GPA. If you just looked at those grades, it was not, that was not my overall GPA by any means. But if you looked at those grades, you could see what I was capable of when I was really passionate and dedicated and had a clear path forward. And I wrote the letter and I got an acceptance email. And the rest is history, kind of, <laughs> because now I sit here as, as a yoga teacher, still teaching at those two spaces where I established myself in 2017, as a social media strategist, still running accounts for my clients and merging the spiritual with the social, as a therapist in training, having gotten in to that program at Florida State University in 2019, I began <laughs> in 2020. And now it's 2022. I've just finished, like last week, I just submitted the final assignments for my formal coursework for this degree. I'm done with my formal coursework. And all I have to do is an internship from August to December. I say all I have to do. It's not going to be a small task, but that's what's left. And then I graduate in December. And I will be able to pursue... A position. My, my plan is to pursue, pursue a position working for either a therapy group or an individual therapist who can supervise me because I've got to have several thousand hours, I think, of supervision before I can actually apply for clinical licensure. But I can begin working after December. And I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how the path will unfold. I will always teach yoga. Always. I don't know how it will look. I don't know how many classes I will teach once I start you know, practicing as a clinician, but I will always teach. I will teach until I die, honestly. That's at least how I feel now. I'll be an old woman sitting up there, not doing a single pose, paying somebody to demo for me, but still teaching wherever and however I can. And I feel similarly about social media. I will always do social media work. It has been such a huge part of my growing up as a spiritual practitioner and, you know, a uh, a skilled like businesswoman in the world and, and a person with adult skills. I'll always do it in some way. I'm not sure exactly what shape it will take as the years go on. And soon I'll be a practicing clinician. And now I'm recording a story about it here on my podcast that I decided to start a year ago, a little over a year ago, 50 episodes ago, as another way of, of sharing of merging all of these skills that I have been gifted and given. And I'm so grateful and humbled by those skills because they've come together in this way where I get to sit and talk to you every week and share practices with you. And this week I wanted to share the story of how we actually got here together, how we got to this point where I, as a yoga teacher and spiritual social media strategist and therapist in training, I'm sitting here talking to you and sharing this podcast with you. So that's my story. <laughs> this is one of my longer podcast episodes, just 50 whole minutes of, of sharing. And I know the format of this podcast is slightly different because typically we, we do, you know, about a half, 20 minutes, half hour of discussion and then a good, you know, 15-ish minutes of practice. And this has been um, almost an hour of storytelling. And we won't do 15 minutes of practice, but I would be remiss if I didn't offer some practice to close this episode because this episode 
is essentially about how yoga is at the root of everything I do and it has brought me everything that I have. And yoga is not just those physical asana classes like the first one that I went to. It is the meditation like we do together each week. It is serving like I try to do through some of the work that I do in helping people. It is sacred music. One of the things that yoga brought me back to was music. I was, alongside being a dancer, I was a singer. For many years I was in, you know, public school choral programs for my entire public school career. I was taking voice lessons up until, up until after my final year of high school. And then I sort of went away from it for a bit. I think I got a little burnt out. But finding my yoga community also reintroduced me to music because one of the things my yoga community loves is sacred music. We sing mantra. We sing sacred sound often. And so it reintroduced me to my love of music. So truly, yoga is this multifaceted practice that I have so much deep reverence for. And it's the reason for everything in my life and on my path. So all that is to say, I would be remiss if I didn't offer some kind of practice to close this out. It'll be shorter, but it'll be real. So from wherever you are, you can get your body into a comfortable position. You can find a long spine. Nothing too formal or fancy here today. And maybe you close your eyes. Maybe you take a soft gaze down your nose or toward the floor. Typically, I have a more formal transition from story from from discussion to meditation, but we're just going to we're going to follow the path. That's really what this episode has been about. So we're just going to follow the moment right into some practice. So you might close your eyes or soften your gaze, just turning your awareness toward yourself. You might turn your awareness toward your breath. No change is needed in the breath right now. Just observing, listening, watching. Inviting your mind, your body, and your focus to land in one place on the, the rhythm of the breath as a centering practice. We're going to take just a few sushumna breaths. Sushumna refers to the spinal column, which is the central line of energy in the body, the home of the nervous system, kind of the central pathway of our practice in a lot of ways. So using your creative imagination, you might bring your focus to your tailbone, to wherever your lower body is meeting the surface that you're sitting or standing on, and then inhale up from your tailbone to the crown of your head, breathing up the line of your spinal column. Exhale down from the crown of your head to your tailbone, breathing down your spine. And we're just going to breathe up and down the spine a few times, inhaling up, exhaling down, following the path of energy, of awareness a representation of following the path as it unfolds in front of you. It has for me, for better or worse, it's been difficult, it's been amazing, and it has led me to a really gorgeous life in a lot of ways. And I know that none of it is because of me and it's all been given to me. And so we breathe up and down the spine a couple times just to model the willingness to walk the path. Let's take a breath up the spine. Exhale back down your spine. And as you're ready, if your eyes are closed, you can blink them open. You can begin to return to the external world, still perhaps maintaining awareness of your internal experience just from that moment of practice. And it's that place where the internal realm of your spiritual experience meets the external realm of the world around you that the path unfolds 
Thank you for joining me for this awareness offering and for going into embodied practice with me. You can find me on social media at Laura Tara, L-A-U-R-A-T-A-R-A, on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. My intro and outro music was created by none other than my very own brother, Oxella Sun, O-X-E-L-A-S-U-N, whom you can also find on Instagram.